everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. Hey, everybody. On this episode of the show, I sat down with Josh Shree. Josh is a really fascinating guy. He has a wonderful podcast called The Emerald. Um, and on this podcast, he speaks a lot about animism and uh, myths, storytelling, legends. And he does a really beautiful job of, of weaving a lot of these themes together um, <clears throat> really talking about animism and kind of this 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 pulsating life force that that 
exists in all things. And he, he's really a master storyteller, and he draws on different traditions, uh, different religions, different myths throughout the world, and does a really good job of, um, of presenting them in, in a really well-done podcast. Just the, the production value is, is amazing, and his storytelling ability, his ability to, to draw on different themes, it's, uh, it's, um, it, it's just excellent. So uh, it was a pleasure to have him on, to have him talk about some of these things, to go into these ideas of animism and, and spirit and uh, just kind of uh, the, the power of myth and uh, a bit about his background and, and just a lot of topics that, that he touches on in his podcast. So I think and hope you all will enjoy this one. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to bring on these guests. Patreon is a really good option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, to all of the patrons, to all the people who are um, supporting that way, thank you very much. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Um, and if you're able to do that, thank you in advance. Um, also, if you're not able to do that, uh, as always, doing some of the smaller things uh, make a really big difference. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, uh, subscribing to the show, um, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, those things really help with the algorithms. And then if you're listening to this show, the audio version, the podcast version on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, following or subscribing to the show, leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a very big help. So I think that's it for the intro. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Josh. Thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. We, we were chatting a, a little beforehand. I'm actually coming from Ireland, and uh, I just uh, my my buddy who's here. I, I turned him on to your podcast, and uh, he, he said it was the best podcast he'd ever listened to. Uh, so so shout out to Emmett. He also wanted a shout out on this. Uh, uh, I don't know if you realized I also had a podcast. So, <laughs> but uh, well, according to him, your, yours is the um, best. Uh, so. Jason, just so you know, you were cutting out a bit during that um, last okay. part. I don't know if how your internet connection is, but yeah, it could be a little wonky, but but hopefully it'll it'll stay okay. up. Yeah, but if anything comes up, just let me know. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So uh, yeah, so maybe maybe to start, uh, you could just tell the audience a little bit uh, about yourself because I actually don't know much about your backstory, so I'd also be very curious to uh, to learn about that as well. And, and then also maybe uh, what what got you interested in in, in the podcast and, and what was the impetus to to start that? Sure. I mean, it's funny. I guess now the podcast is starting to spread out and reach a certain number of people, and then within that, people are actually wanting to 
ask me the like terrifying question of who I am <laughs> and where, where I came from and how I got into doing this and that kind of thing. And, um, I have to adjust a little bit because my tendency is definitely not to talk about myself very much. I, I much prefer to tell stories and talk about the, the animate forces at the heart of those stories. But I can just say that I, I grew up fairly steeped in an animate worldview. I grew up in a spiritual practice center um, in the Zen Buddhist traditions and and then went on to live in India when I was younger. And that time in India as um, a teenager really affected my worldview, really impacted me, led me to study the Indian traditions and the Tibetan traditions for years and years and years and years, um, which I still continue to do. And at the same time, growing up in the Southwest, I was exposed to Native American traditions. I practiced um, in the Lakota Sweat Lodge tradition for for a while. And so really my life has been um, a long journey of practice. It's been a long journey of seeking a place that I know that you're familiar with, which is the place of of rapture, of of union with the natural world, of union with what is sometimes called the divine. And it's been a driving force in my life. And the times when I recognized that as a driving force in my life and was able to architect practice around it went really well. And the times when I ignored that as a driving force in my life and tried to pretend it wasn't, didn't go so well. <laughs> and I always found myself called back to the direct experience of ritual practice. And, um, and within that really started the podcast as a way to help reconnect myself and hopefully others who listen to it to reconnect myself to what you could call the, the voice of the animate, the voice of the world around us. So if we understand, you know, that the myths and stories and philosophies and traditions are pointing us not to, you know, a set of abstract, analytical, rational um, conclusions, but are pointing us instead to something experiential. They're pointing us to a fundamental somatic heartfelt experience of the world around us. And if we recognize that in the modern world, we've kind of drifted away from that felt experiential, then I feel that there is a need now to reconnect us to this deep felt animacy that um, we're longing for it, that when it's missing, um, terrible things happen. And so the promise of the stories, the promise of the myths, the promise of the practice traditions, the promise of ritual is this promise of reconnection, of returning us to a place where we can listen more deeply to the voice of the world. And in listening more deeply to the voice of the world, maybe start to understand what our role is in in singing back, in offering back what we're here to do in this world of eyes, as I recently said in a in an episode, what we're here to do in this world that is alive. So really the the impetus behind the podcast, I guess, is, you know, a journey of 
felt experience within practice traditions and outside of those traditions, uh, a journey of felt experience that has been beautiful and wonderful and tumultuous and aggravating and powerful and all of these things. And I want to help in whatever small way I can to return people to a basic experience of connection with the animate forces all around us. How would you define something that's animate or, or that idea of animism? You know, there's so many ways in that conversation for the analytical mind to get involved. And I actually explored this on the most recent episode, um, which is about the animacy of supposedly inanimate objects like stones and, and uh, even tools and these types of things. Um, and I think that when we get into too much analytical thinking around it, like, you know, is that rock animate? Is that rock conscious? Is it sentient? Is it sentient the way I think of sentient? I think that that can take us away from the immediacy of the experience of it. And the heart of what I describe as animate, I mean, as I understand it, like within the Indian traditions that I've studied in the tantric traditions, that there is a animating force to this universe, a conscious animating force to this universe, and that everything that exists w exists within this animate force. As I understand it, there is an animacy that pervades everything, that everything is pervaded with the animate. And so in experiences of conjunctive rapture, in experiences like, you know, entheogenic states that you're familiar with, in experiences after a long time dancing, and in experiences in meditation, in experiences of prolonged singing, in, in repetitive experiences of ritual, we feel a waking world. We feel a world that is awake and alive and that hums to us and speaks to us with many voices. You know, and it's not something that we can force and it's not something that we have to try to force. The world is not going to seem like it is, you know, sparking with the sound of a thousand choirs like all the time. But it is an essential and integral part of the human experience, and particularly the human experience in states of heightened consciousness, heightened rapture. It's an essential part of our experience to experience the world as alive, as animated, as um, moving, changing, transforming, even as aware, as aware. So one of the things I talked about in this last episode, which was a beautiful conversation with a friend of mine, a sculptor named Rose B. Simpson, one of the things we talked about is how the heart of the animate experience or the animist experience, you could say, if you want to add an ism to it, the heart of that experience is understanding the watchful eyes of the universe around us, understanding that everything that we do matters understanding that we are in a relationship with stones and waters and trees, that yesterday we were those stones and tomorrow we will be those stones again, and that the body that we inhabit is made up of those stones. And all of that talk of the stones being grandfathers isn't metaphorical talk. Literally, this earth is an ancestral theater of stone from which life emerges right and returns back to. And so our connection, um, I think that 
uh, David Haberman says this in his book really beautifully, but our connection with the so-called inanimate world is much, 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 much deeper than we think. We are intimately tied, intimately connected to all that which is around us, and all of it hums with life. All of it hums with life. All of it exhibits agency in its way. Part of our problem is that we've like really limited the definition of what agency is, of what personhood is. We've really limited to think that like it's all based on the kind of um, detached ability to observe oneself, right? Um, but there is a pattern, there is a flow to this great creation, and that flow is really, by most definitions, alive, which is why culture upon culture have recognized it as alive for thousands of years. One of the things that, that you see in, in traditional cultures all over the world um, is something you, you seem to be really connected to, which is this idea of myth, of legends, of stories. And, and it seems like something in a lot of the cultures we've come from, we've, we've been cut off from that or, or, you know, or maybe the stories have evolved, but, but it seems like there was these ancestral stories that I think often we look at them as somehow silly or even childlike. Um, but even in, in a lot of the work I'm doing, uh, in, even with a lot of plants, there was often this idea that before working with the plant, the, the story had to be tell, told. And every time that the plant was worked with, the story was told because it was understood that mm -hmm. one, that that created a ceremony, it created a ritual. Um, but there was a deep knowledge that was passed in that story. And, and even to the point where they would say like, that there's these healing codes that are embedded in the story that affect us as medicine without even the medicine mm -hmm. itself. Um, and, and I feel like a lot of these myths and legends are like that. Um, so I guess the question would be like, why or how have you found that that's so important? Because for me, you know, it resonates is very important, but it seems like something we've, we, we've moved away from or, or even lost. Mm. Yeah, you broke up a bit there at the end, but I think I got what, where you're going. So the, we assume we, and when I say we, I mean the modern West, right? The, the lens of modernity that, um, all of us who are within the modern culture tend to see things in a fairly particular way. We in the modern West, looking through the lens of literate analysis, assume that the purpose of a story is to be about something. So it's written down and that story is a placeholder for some type of deeper meaning. Um, and certainly, you know, this literary way of seeing the world has its beauties and has its benefits. But when you look at the role of myth and story, as you're getting at, when you look at the role of myth and story in traditional ritual culture, the myth and story aren't just about something. They are designed to provoke something, a journey within the individual who hears it or within the ritual space in which people are telling it or enacting it. Often the stories are enacted. Often they're told, but that telling is a transmission. 
when you sit around a campfire and listen to somebody telling a story and they speak of the waters and they speak of the skies and they speak of the ashes and they speak of the trees, right? They're taking us somewhere. They're not simply saying, now I want to tell you a story about these abstract concepts. They're saying, now I want you to feel the bristle of the blue spruce with your skin. I want your mind to be linked with the wisps of cloud. I want your consciousness to go on the journey that the waters go on, right? It's a way of provoking a feeling of taking a person into a particular state. It's an initiatory process. It's a process of transmission. So the story is, in this way, a living entity, right? The story passes on from mouth to ear, and the story provokes reactions in bodies, and those reactions change behaviors. And in this way, the story exhibits all of the hallmarks of a living being. The story changes, the story reproduces, the offspring of the story are um, recognizable as part of that original generation of the story, but they also contain their differences. And then the offspring of that story is like the, the child of the story. You can see the predecessor in it, but um, it evolves and changes and morphs and its effects evolve and change and morph. So the story is treated as something that is alive. And in many cases, the story, like you said, like there are certain stories in certain traditions that are only told in certain circumstances and at certain times. They're only told ritually. They're only told within the context of, um, you know, some type of ritual practice or initiatory practice. And that further, um, embeds you could say like the power of the story in the in the individual bodies it becomes part of a whole process right so in the eleusinian traditions the story of persephone was not told widely you know she was honored outside of her initiatory rites she was honored but you didn't speak her name outside of the initiations and in the initiations her story was told and it was told probably once per year. And it was told during a particular initiatory ceremony. And the telling of that story took people on a journey through the phases of descent and rise and descent and rise that Persephone herself went on. So the story wasn't to get the logical analytical mind going, you know, thinking, oh, right, I heard the story of Persephone and it's symbolic of the seasons and this kind of thing. The story was to take the initiate on a journey of descent and rise, to take the initiate into the depths of the underworld and to bring them back up again. The story was linked to the cycle of the seasons. It was linked to the powers of that, that descend and the powers that rise. It was an expression of these things. It wasn't a removed thing. It was part of that organic whole. So the story exists um, to take us on a journey. It exists to transform us. It exists to um, express through us. It exists to reform us and shape us. It's a living, breathing thing. You're mentioning you spend a lot of time in India, and I've, I've also been to India a number of times. And I always find one of the, the very fascinating things is is kind of as you're describing, like the the stories, the life, the ritual, the, the daily activities, you know, there, there's so much symbiosis, like there, there's a harmonic expression of, of everything that's going on. Um, 
how do you think that plays in? Because for many people, I think we're, we're very drawn to myth and story, um, legends, but how do you think that interplay comes when, when, when we take a story or a myth, but we might not be from that culture engrossed in that culture or realize like all of the things that may be happening in an extraneous level, um, do you think there's still like in that way, like healing codes or, or, or like uh, power or lessons that are, that are ingrained in those stories that are universal, that kind of transcend time and space and that we can still grasp onto? Or do you think those stories were designed for people in a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific culture that, that there's more power uh, in being in that? Mm. Well, first about India. Yeah, you know, for me, India was where I first encountered living story, living myth, story that is shaping bodies and shaping um, culture and is recognized as the living force that it is. So myth isn't something that just like lives over here as this little separate thing that's fun and maybe fun to like, you know, <laughs> write about and science fiction or fantasy movies, right? Myth is a living force that permeates the culture and story then holds a very different place than it does. But yet still in Western culture, story does drive culture, right? There are many mythic narratives at play within our culture and we see those mythic narratives play out. It's just that we're not always aware of it. <laughs> we're not always aware that these are deep, sacred cultural driving forces, right? And when we forget that, then we're liable to be swayed by any old story. And that's something interesting to look at in terms of modernity and its relationship with story. Now, as far as, you know, the body of a story, the context in which a story lives, um, I think that it's both, you know, I think that having studied like in traditions, I think there is a very, very deep power to what you could call kind of the initiatory phases and ritual phases of coming to know certain stories at a certain time and a story having a living context with which everyone kind of is familiar with within the body of that culture um, and a story living and growing within that context. I think there is a, a deep power to that. And I think that it's important. I always recommend that people study in lineage. Um, I think that at some point or another in a person's life, studying within lineage is, is just, it's really potent and powerful. And it means sometimes we have to, you know, get over some of the aversion we have to the idiosyncrasies of lineage, right? And there are many of those, um, you know, and we have to find the right one for us, but there is a power to how story lives within context. Absolutely. And then I think on the, the other side of the equation, I think it's important, um, you know, there's a lot of people now who are wanting to reconnect to animacy. There's a lot of people who are wanting to reconnect to the potency and power of myth and story. And um, I think it's important to remember that all of our ancestors had contexts in which to feel this. All of our ancestors felt connected to story. All of our ancestors, no matter where you come from, all of our ancestors were quote unquote animist in one way or another that, and that the, you know, part of the 
process, and you could even say birthright of being human, is the um, offering to access the animate, to access, um, you know, to rediscover our connection to the universe around us. And story, whether it is anchored in lineage or unmoored from lineage and free-floating around the globe, has power to offer within that. Now, I feel that story should be treated respectfully. There are certain cultural traditions that don't want their stories shared, and I feel like that should be absolutely respected. And then I also feel that the animate is mysterious and reshapes itself all the time and reimagines itself all the time. And I know, like, from my, you know, um, studies and time in Brazil, that there are syncretic traditions popping up all over the globe all the time that are reimagining story. The Afro-Brazilian traditions, like the traditions of, you know, Candomblé and these types of traditions, these are reimaginings of story. They're reimaginings of Christian story. They're reimaginings of African story. They're reimagining reimaginings of indigenous story all interweaving and melding and sprouting <laughs> new offspring. And I think that that process is beautiful too. So really, I think that, you know, it's a balance. I think that we can hold all of it um, and say, okay, in this modern world, there is story that is going to be unmoored and unanchored and reimagining itself. And there is also a great value of studying story in its traditional context. And both of these things have value. It seems like one of the interesting things you're doing is kind of as you described, like you, you've become very immersed in, in various traditions, and it seems like you're you're able to speak from a place of, of experience, but but also kind of drawing on on various traditions and, and kind of refining them down, finding these commonalities. Do you have? I mean, this is kind of a big question, but. Do you think there's a common source of, of where these stories are originating from, as in some sort of direct experience that someone is having, um, you know, like in a more like Ju um, Judeo-Christian point of view, like, you know, like Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments from God. I mean, it's very clear that that's mm. where the source is coming from. Um, or do you think these are these are things that, that that people are learning along the way in order like to, to bring order to their society to bring order to their tribe because it seems like there are so many commonalities i mean as you said like so many stories are told and then retold in different ways um even as civilizations begin to change like mm -hmm. even that christian story you can see very parallel stories as you go further back in time and even in in disparate parts of the world um to I mean, I know it's a big question, but do you have any sense of like kind of the origin, like where these stories are coming from? Is it is it a direct experience of people? Um, is it is, you know, like some people would say it is a divine truth that, that's being experienced somehow. And then that's being relayed in the archetype of someone like Moses. Um, but it's very interesting because, you know, as you are alluding to, like a, a lot of these stories are retold or repurposed to to serve a particular time and place. Yeah. Um, first off, I, I like big questions. <laughs> um, it's good to dive into the, the big questions. And, you know, I can only speak from my perspective and my experience. They, they say the Vedas were heard. They say that the Vedas were heard, right? So the sage bards, the rishis, 
the Kavis, the sage bards heard the Vedas resounding from the land. Right In the Australian Aboriginal traditions, they'll talk very plainly about how the land transmits songs and stories. And you can say land, and you can say nature, and you can say universe, and you can say divine, and you can say her, right? The, the ever-pulsing animate force at the heart of it all. Vakshakti in the Indian traditions, the power of voice. Right? The stories emanate from the voice of nature. The stories emanate from the voice of nature and are heard, they're heard, they're perceived by the ones that attune themselves to hear these types of stories. So the human being, are they filtered through the individual filter of the human being and then through the individual filter of culture? Yes. Right. But the more the human being attunes themselves, right, no matter what, culture they happen to come from, they tend to hear a similar story because that story is reflected in the structure of nature around us. So stories of sacrifice and regeneration, stories of expansion and contraction, stories of rise and fall, all of these things are stories that are shouted by the world constantly. Nature speaks to us constantly and tells us how she operates, how she manifests, how she moves, how she works how it is for human beings who are a reflection of all of these processes of nature too, right? So what you find, you know, it's important to recognize differences in cultural story because there are many, but at the heart, at the foundation, at the root, stories are what they are because human bodies perceive directly from the source, they perceive how it is within the natural world, right? The myths at their heart are aligned with the workings of nature. So then, like I said, they get kind of filtered through the, the prism of culture. And usually within traditional cultures, there are kind of what you could call like contexts and systems of accountability so that someone who receives just any old story has to demonstrate how that story is actually a reflection of how nature works, right? It's not just like, oh, I came up with any old thing. You know, like some storytelling these days, <laughs> like some storytelling these days is just like, you know, oh, I came up with any old thing. That's just as good a story as any other, right? Well, I asked Tyson Yonkaporta, who's an indigenous author from Australia, I asked him, um, you know, he talks about good story and bad story. And we dove into it a little deeper and talked about how, quote unquote, good story is story that is in tune with how nature actually works. So there's story that is a reflection of how nature works. And then there's story that um, might lead you down a road <laughs> that, that isn't quite in that, in that direction. You know, for example, I've used this example before, but the, the, the story that on a planet of limited resources, we can just continue consuming as much as we want. That's bad story. It doesn't line up with how things actually are in nature. Good story is sung from the waters, sung from the hilltops. Good story is sung from each blade of grass that rings like a little bell, right? Good story resounds all around us, and we have to attune ourselves to start to hear it, to start to hear the story of the voice of nature, the voice of the power of the world. 
right? And in hearing it, then figure out how to give voice to it. And in giving voice to it, have a system, some type of system of accountability around us where that story can then be put through the filter of culture, right? And then reach others and touch their hearts and move and evolve. So I feel, and again, this is all, you know, I don't expect people to agree with me, <laughs> but I feel that story is the voice of the world speaking to us. And the reason that we see so many commonalities and so many cultural stories is because nature speaks along particular harmonic lines and is heard in very similar ways by people who are attuned to her. You mentioned this idea, which I think is is very profound and, and actually something sometimes we, I think we forget about, but, but in these stories, in these myths, there is this idea of reconnecting. You use the word rapture. Um, and, and that obviously seems to be one of the primary functions. I, I wonder if you also think that there, you know, we also mentioned this idea of healing codes built into the stories. I wonder if you mm -hmm. also think that, that some of these stories are designed to teach a human being what it means to be a human being, because you're also speaking about this idea of, of nature, that there are these inherent truths in nature. Um, you also mentioned this idea kind of early in passing, but that in kind of modern times, we we can fall for a story very easily without even realizing it's a story. And there's, there's a very common saying, which is believe in something or, or fall prey to anything. And do you think that some of these stories were actually designed in a way to teach people, to teach humans, to teach communities, um, how to be, how to live, how to, how to be a person, how to live in harmony with nature. Like what are these divine laws or what are these, these words that nature is, is pointing to uh, in order for us to also act upon that? Yeah, I think, you know, this is the, really the entire heart purpose of ritual culture, which then, you know, over time in human history became expressed as religious tradition and, you know, and then obviously many of the religious traditions grew to unwieldy size and started to lose their connection to the heart um, understanding of nature at the center of it. But this is really what human beings have sought to do all along, which is, you know, through cultural ritual traditions, cultural practices, access to rapturous states, access to shifts in consciousness, have, um, you know, have structured themselves around a basic experience of what it means to be alive and living and separate yet connected and in relation and how then to translate that fundamental experience into one's life. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of what's happened in the West recently is like the, the completely understandable backlash against um, large religious institutions, then leading people to kind of a like, oh, I'm just going to figure it out for myself <laughs> kind of, you know, mentality. And I think now what you're seeing is people starting to see some of the shortcomings of, of, of that, where it's just like the kind of amorphous, um, 
spiritual journeying without any anchor or center doesn't tend to allow one to go as deep, right? So I think you're seeing that there's a deep longing for what you're talking about. Now within that, like choosing a teacher, choosing a lineage, you know, all of these kinds of things, choosing a community that that explores this kind of stuff, all of these kinds of things take a lot of care and they take a lot of um you know, time and, and patience. Um but they're extremely important. It's been extremely important for me to have teachers in my life. It's been extremely important for me to come from the place of the student over and over and over and over again, you know, to the point that I still, I love nothing more than discovering, you know, a new text or a new tradition or, you know, a new ritual way of seeing the world. I think, I think that being in that place of the student is a, is a very, very precious place to be. Um, within that, the, the truths that tend to reveal themselves over and over are truths that we all have heard a hundred times. They're true. Like they're, they're readily available these days, right? You can hear, you can go on Instagram and see a hundred memes about a hundred different spiritual truths, like in the course of an hour, right? You can go to a spiritual bookstore and all the wisdom of all the ages is on sale <laughs> right there, right? You know, we don't have any shortage of truths, what we have a shortage of is context in which those truths can actually start to be embodied within bodies. Right. So at a certain point in my life, I had heard a lot of the spirit, having grown up in a spiritual community, I had heard a lot of the truths and I was like, Oh yeah, I got that. I got that whole spirituality stuff. You know, I got that. <laughs> this is like, you know, in my early twenties and stuff like that. And, uh, and then, you know, we come to terms with the fact that like none of those spiritual truths mean anything unless they've actually been put into practice in a person's life over time. So the truths that tend to, you know, replay themselves over and over again are truths about interrelationality and truths about love and truths about cause and effect and truths about how, what we do to the web of life we do to ourselves and truths about seasonality. And this is a, big thing that I'm talking about now um, in preparation for a coming episode, but the, the seasonality, how things have their natural time of growth and their natural time of contraction and their natural time of planting and their natural time of harvest. And we live in a world these days that is trying to push everything outwards all the time, right? Oh, I had a spiritual experience. I have to tell everybody about it on Instagram and maybe I can monetize it and I can start to be my livelihood, right? Or, oh, I'm developing this new AI code software thing. I've got to get it out to market immediately without any testing, right? There's this constant push forward, this constant push to not hold the truth, to not have the seasonality of it, to not let it ripen with the seasons, right? To push it outwards. And in pushing it outwards, we're ensuring that none of it is actually getting embodied, right? It needs time to be embodied, it needs seasonality to be embodied. It needs a winter, right? It needs a cycle of the winter in which things go inward and the sap draws in. It needs that. So to me, this is one of the most profound truths that nature is broadcasting to us continuously, is that everything in its due time, the moon is singing this to us all the time, right? Everything in its due time, everything in its due season, everything ripens, you know, according to 
the nature of the seed that was planted and the conditions of the soil and conditions of the light. And what we can do is maybe prepare the vessel well, the container well, so that all of these truths that we're exposed to, so that one of them lands, right, and has a place in us to sprout roots and to sprout branches and leaves and to reach towards sunlight and to grow over time, over time. So these truths are all around us and it's about having a place within us or a context, you know, a ritual or lineage context or a communal context or a friendship context or a context with our, within our loving relationship, a context in which those truths can actually start to sprout roots. You, you did an amazing uh, two episodes. I, I believe it was called The, the Revolution Will Not Be Psychologized. Um, one, I, I think, was just your own production, and one, you interviewed someone. I, I'm probably going to butcher his name. I think it was Bayo Ako Malafe, maybe you say it? Bayo Ako Malafe, yeah. Um, and, and I really enjoyed those. And, and, and you know, you, you touched on a lot of topics that, that I had been noticing probably for the past decade. And as we were talking a little bit about before this, this, uh, we, we started the recording, um, you know, and, and almost everyone watching this probably realizes, but, but a big part of my work is, is working with, with plants, with plant medicine. And I saw it very much coming into the plant medicine world was this looking, looking at the world of plants through this psychologized view that everything was somehow personal and, and anything that was experienced could somehow be defined or rationalized or understood through the mind, which I found so interesting because I, you know, for me, one of the ways these plants are working is actually bypassing the rational mind, you know, pointing towards these things that mm. you're speaking of, uh, rapture, divinity, remembering, you know, reconnecting. Um, and then also this idea of, of trauma and, you know, like everything, it, it's important to preface, uh, you know, much of life seems to work in this very like pendulum like manner, like 50 years ago, there was for sure, not an emphasis on trauma. And that has its shortcomings, because, you know, these things are real. Um, but now, you know, especially more and more, there's this huge emphasis on trauma that everything can be reduced to some childhood event. And that's the explanation of all of your problems. And if you just touch on that thing, then you'll be a happy and forever free person. And, you know, as you mentioned, kind of it goes with this very like I, me, me kind of culture that we're living in where everything is on Instagram and, uh, you know, my trauma. And it becomes another layer that we add on to, whereas you know, I think the essence of what a lot of these plants are pointing to is this stripping away, this this moving towards the unknown, towards the mysterious. And yet that kind of trauma mentality is is like packing on more layers. Well, well, I have this and therefore this and therefore this and therefore this. Um there there was a lot of quotes. I actually have uh, quite a few written down in in um from those two episodes you did. But I was wondering if you could just uh, maybe begin to explore that a bit with the audience. Um, what 
what you were pointing towards in, in that idea of the the revolution won't be psychologized because you know it's very fascinating like when i was noticing that 10 years ago it seemed very specific to plant medicine that that, that vernacular was was very much coming in there um you know and mm -hmm. and there was a lot of you know again there can be benefit to that but but i also noticed you know there's a tremendous amount of problems because there there was a real amputation of of, of all of the mystery of all of the unknown of all the cultural context of, of all of the things that that can't necessarily be explained with this vernacular um, but i thought you did a, a really amazing job of beginning to touch on some of those points so i wonder if you know again it's uh, i don't expect you to summarize you know the, the the three hours or whatever you did in those two episodes but are there some points you can touch on uh, about that sure i mean you know there's many different levels to what you're asking about and what those episodes go into. I think, you know, if I were to look at the heart of it in relation to this conversation that we're having, the modern Western world will turn anything into what you could call like an individualist sport, right? <laughs> like we'll turn anything into, um, a, a activity or, you know, lifestyle or way of seeing the world or belief system that has only really to do with the individual. And you can see this in modern day spirituality. You can see it in modern day work with plant medicines. So with the work with plant medicines in particular, you know, the Western world assumes that, okay, if we're going to get approval to use these plant medicines in like, um, mass, setting, we're going to have to introduce them in this therapeutic model. And the nature of that therapeutic model is, for the most part, one person with their therapist. And the reason that some uh, that a person goes to participate in one of these, you know, psychedelic sessions, um, or whatever they happen to be called, is because they want to address something that's going on within themselves. Now, the the want to address things within ourselves is natural and beautiful and it's something that you know the psychology world has opened up a lot for people in the world and so i say at the beginning of the episode that it's not like a, a bashing of um of psychology because i think it's good obviously that people are addressing what is called trauma and that issues are coming out but we have to also be able to expand the cultural lens a little bit and say, okay, it's not a small thing to take um, incredibly powerful beings. Um, we can call them substances, but we could also call them beings because that's how they've been traditionally understood. To take incredibly powerful forces, incredibly powerful beings, incredibly powerful plant medicines um, out of a ri ritual, communal, ecological context and say that the most neutral way that a person can actually experience these substances is by themselves in a room on a bed with a therapist attending to their specific personal needs. That's a massive shift in understanding how these substances work. And I understand that there are certain healing traditions that use like traditional healing traditions that if a single person is sometimes in need of like a really powerful healing, will use plant medicines individually. But for the most part, when you look at those cultural contexts, whether it's, you know, looking at um, 
the Weichal use of peyote or the Shipibo traditions or even the modern, you know, syncretic traditions like the Native American church or this kind of thing. Like these, these traditions are done communally and they're done communally for a reason. And within that communal context, right, there is a sense um, not only of what the individual is going through, but a sense of what the communal field needs, what it requires, what forces are present on any given evening, right? What And when I say what forces are present, they recognize inherently in those systems the presence of forces that are beyond the individual. It's a very big change to then take that and say, okay, this experience, this incredibly powerful experience, all this is about you. All of it's about you. All of it's about your head and what's going on in your head. And if you encounter something terrifying in that experience, then it must be something that's going on with you, right? In an animate tradition, sure, it could be something that's going on with the person, or it could be the interplay of the person and the field, or it could really just be something in the field that's passing through. And the person's just happening to pick, hap, the person is happening to pick up on it, right? And to me, this relieves a lot of the burden on the individual. And you could say this in relation to psychedelic work, but you could also say it in relation to what is called kind of personal growth work in general. It's not always all, all about us. There are fields, there are contexts, you know, the, like, you know, that meme, I mentioned it in the episode, but that meme, like if you see a wilting plant, you don't say, aha, you have wilting plant syndrome, right? You look at the lack of light or the dryness of the soil, or the, you know, amount of water, you look at all of these contexts in which the um, individual grows, and you evaluate that contextual relationship. The problem with saying it's all about you, right? On the one hand, you might cause a person to feel like they're the most important thing in the world, right? And that happens sometimes with individual psychedelic experiences. I went off into the woods and I took mushrooms and I went up onto that top of the mountain and I was told that I'm the Messiah, <laughs> right? Like that, that kind of thing, right? The flip side of that is somebody could have a really terrifying experience, encounter something that in a traditional context could be seen as, you know, kind of a malefic force that's moving through. And they could think, oh my God, this is all about me. It's all about like something I went through, I have to clear it. I have to figure out what it is. I have to go through like the turmoil of it. And, you know, sometimes individual turmoil is necessary, but sometimes it's just a matter of saying goodbye to that thing and letting it pass and letting it pass right on through. Right. And so, and this, you know, this is very interesting in terms of like the, the Greek animate foundations of modern Jungian psychology, for example, in which all of these Greek stories are referenced and Greek stories are used like, you know, the story of Narcissus looking into the pool, the story of Eros, all, all of these stories. And all of these gods and all of these forces of nature are presumed to be things that only live within the individual psychology. Now, this isn't how the Greeks saw it, right? The Greeks recognized those as forces that lived within the individual and within the community and within the ecology and within the cosmos, right? So things have to be addressed on multiple levels. And there are issues with how we've chosen to address things only on individual levels. There's issues with that. There are issues with that. Um, you know, and those issues are important. I think really important to look at. So with psychedelics, you know, I say in that episode, like I'm hopeful I'm in support of, you know, I've met people who um, in the modern context have done 
like psychedelic assisted um, therapy and, you know, have been brought out of some pretty serious situations with PTSD and things like that. I know people who are former Navy SEALs who are helping people overcome like deep PSD and traumatic brain injury and all kinds of things with psychedelics. So I think there is individual application, you know, but I think there are also larger questions about what's the paradigm, you know, and again, in our rush to kind of reference something we were talking about a few minutes ago, in our rush to get things out, right, in the psychedelic worlds, like, you know, rush to patent certain therapeutic systems and make them available to the masses, in our rush to get things out, what are we missing? Where are our blind spots? What are we assuming is just kind of a natural way to do something when no culture before us has said, like, this is the way you do it, right? So I think those types of questions are deeply, deeply important. There's, you know, th there's this interesting um, kind of idea that, that you mentioned also with this idea of trauma, because the trauma, you know, in a, in a way, it it speaks about this idea of the self. And, you know, often I, I think in, in plant medicine work, you know, as you were mentioning, there often is a communal aspect there, there. There's some sort of connection that's being formed, not only in the human realm, but, but in the realm of spirit. And, and often, yeah. you know, for me, uh, and again, you know, I can't say this is absolute truth, but, but from my experience, when I've seen people who I've seen who've really deeply touched you know, the essence and, and had very big and profound ceremonies, they're, they're often left with a sense of, of humility, of, of gratitude, of, of, of connection, of awe. They're, they're without speech. And, and a lot of this, you know, psychologizing of, of, of society or, or of this plant medicine work, again, it's very much going back to the rational mind of like reducing, of, of pulling things apart. Um, there's a, there's a division rather than a connection um, you know, even you mentioned something very interesting, this idea that like psychologists are now involved in plant medicine. And I think you brought this up in the podcast, which is a fascinating paradigm shift because they were often the ones who were very skeptical or even dismissing altered states of consciousness <laughs> as not being real. And yet for the people who worked with these plants, those altered states were seen not only as real, but in, in some sense more real than the real world. Um and and now they're kind of the new shamans, the the new arbiters of of what these experiences are, are pointing towards. And you know, uh, another thing you you touched a lot on, which I think was was really powerful, is um, this idea. You, you know, even a plant you were talking about the shpipo, like a, a plant like ayahuasca. I mean, even built into the name is is vine of the dead, and. There's this real idea of death, of rebirth, of going into the darkness. And it seems like so much of kind of the psychologizing of the world, uh, you were speaking a bit of it is, you know, I think for the first time in human history now, like more people live in cities than live in the country. And so there has become in a way this disconnect from nature of, of, of natural law, of, of birth, of death. And it seems like so much of our fear is trying to make the world safe which is also this very interesting theme that you find in plant medicine now, which is trying to make it safe. And again, you know, um, uh, putting a caveat that, that of course, like safety is paramount safety in the dosing, safety in who you're working with safety in the setting. These are paramount. 
But if things become too safe, you know, it's kind of like this pasteurization of milk. It's like you're pasteurizing it to make it safe for consumption. But that milk then ends up killing you over a long period of time because you've killed all the life. You've killed all the microorganisms. You've killed the very thing that that actually Mm -hmm. make it a life-giving food. And now you've made it a, a dead food. Um, but it, you know, it seems like so many of these systems are are actually coming from from a disconnect from nature, from a fear of life, and so we want to make things safe. We want to put up walls. We want to put up regulations. Um, we 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 want to do things in a way where we're not having to go into a loss of control. Uh, we don't need to worry about things like faith or worship or you know surrender because these are kind of dirty words in a way and so we're 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 trying to sterilize something to kind of fit almost like this worldview of living in a city where everything is compartmentalized and and we can name and 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 know everything um so yeah, I, I wonder if you can touch a little bit up on that because it's, you know, again, I noticed it coming into plant medicine world, but but you know now it's it's also moving out into society as well, um, and it's even mm-hmm. it's becoming permeated in the language that we use. I mean, you know, e- even like in a political sense, it's very fascinating. Like um, I remember a number of years ago, you know, there, there was a U.S. candidate running, and whether you liked him or not, it was very fascinating the language because he was seen as someone who had a lot of trauma and he, he did actions from this place of trauma and therefore he was a bad person. And yet I saw so many people acting in this way of saying things like, well, he needs to be killed or he needs to, you know, what a horrible person we should, you know, uh, we should beat him up or kill him or demonize him. And it's the same thing. I think you mentioned this idea of like, you know, when we see trauma in someone else, we name it and we name it as bad. And yet there's now this whole culture of of this holding on to trauma within us as if it's like something very precious, a gift that, that needs to be put out into the public. And it becomes even our language, you know, like I'm doing the work or, you know, someone else isn't doing the work, therefore they're less than. And, you know, it's almost taking this, this, this actually like language of a cult, you know, it's, um, it's very specific and it's creating uh, this very particular way of, of looking at the world. Mm. Yeah. So, um, another big question and the piece, (laughs) the piece about, you know, psychedelics and safety and this kind of thing. This is really interesting. I was, I was giving a talk the other night to, um, the, like the psychedelic society of Vermont, I think is its official title. Um, I was invited there by a member of a course that I'm teaching and, you know, we got into this discussion of like, it's very, it, you know, there are some very interesting issues that are going to be brought up with the psychologization of plant medicines, because unlike the kind of trend in the overall psychological world of, of safe space and this type of talk, there's no way that, uh, therapist can guarantee a person who's about to enter the realm of plant medicines that what they're going into is a quote-unquote safe space you just can't i mean they can guarantee that you know the therapist will respect certain like client therapist boundaries and all that kind of thing but you can't guarantee what the experience is going to be like right you can't guarantee that that person's not going to find themselves um you know 
torn apart by the forces of nature or every semblance of their ego structure uh, disassembled before their quivering eyes, <laughs> right? Like you can't guarantee that. And this is interesting because it gets at like the difference of what you could call, you know, the way the animist world might view safety versus how the psychological world might view safety, you know, being disassembled like that. And you could say like drawn into the heart of the mother or drawn into the heart of creation. That's ultimately for a being, you know, in particular worldviews, probably the safest thing that there is, right? Like, to ultimately have our individual selves dismantled and be taken into a state of union with the greater, that is safety. But to get to that safety requires a lot of things in ourselves that we've been holding onto incredibly deeply to die, right? You said, you mentioned the name of, you know, the death vine. Um, and the fundamental experience in psychedelics is a type of death experience. It is the removal of the individual rational mind and the individual rational ego into that place of, um, you know, subsumption into the jaws of the mother, right? So in this way, you know, animate traditions would probably see the discourse on safety a little bit differently than we see it in the modern world. So safety, like, yes, and, you know, and I said this in the episode, I absolutely firmly believe that there is a need for, you know, marginalized communities to have what is called safe space. At the same time, safe space has kind of, uh, like, spilled over those boundaries and has come to mean, like, I'm not going to encounter anything uncomfortable or I'm not going to encounter anything that my individual being sees as, you know, rude or offensive or as a threat to the constructs that I've built up around identity or this kind of thing. And quite simply, the universe doesn't make such guarantees, right? The experience of being a human is compromise after compromise after compromise. The experience of being a human is precisely encountering that which makes us uncomfortable and that which asks us to see things in different ways and this kind of thing. Um, you know, so how does, how does like, how do conversations of modern psychological safe space butt up against animist understandings of safe space? An animist, uh, I'm going to let this plane pass here. <laughs> a, um, you know, someone coming from a traditional animate background might look at a lot of norms within modern culture and say, those are profoundly spiritually unsafe, right? Safe space is established in very different ways in animate circles. It's established by knowing the field of forces. It's established by knowing the directions. It's established by knowing how to um, create ritual space. It's established by knowing how to bid farewell to certain, you know, forces that you don't want hanging around. Um, safety has to do with the willingness of the individual specifically to let themselves be taken into that egoless state. So I think that, you know, I think that um, when there's too much emphasis, you know, and then, and then how something like psychedelics, how plant medicines work with what we call trauma, how ritual often even harnesses trauma. And I talked about this at length in that episode, you know, um, 
native cultures, many of the rituals that are practiced and performed within native cultures are painful. Um, many of them are long and drawn out and frustrating and really get at points of annoyance within us and get at places where we want to push back against the world. And it's like, nope, you got to return to the dance again, 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 right? Until we're at the point of like friction in our relationship with the larger world. And that deliberate harnessing of discomfort and pain says a lot about the repatterning of trauma. You know, a lot of native traditions don't look at what we call trauma and they don't name it trauma, first of all, but they don't look at a person who had like a really intense experience and say, okay, what we have to do with this person is then surround them with a web of safety. A lot of times it's like they need not, this person has been through this. Let's plunge them into the deep end of the initiatory pool and repattern in that state of, um, of rapture in that state of ceremonial ecstasy. Right. Cause in that space of pain and joy and tears of ecstasy and tears of pain and tears of longing and tears of grief, that place where all those things merge together, we enter what you could call a perm more permeable, more repatternable state. But we don't get there if we're not willing to have, you know, some turbulence at the beginning of takeoff. We don't get there if we're not willing to be devoured by the devouring jaws of the mother. We don't get there if we're not willing to have certain assumptions about our individuality and its importance challenged every step of the way. So I feel that the, the, the way to the transformative space, and, you know, again, this is why, like, there's a big question mark still. You can talk about, you know, the certain neurochemicals involved and all this kind of thing, but there's a question mark about why the psychedelic experience seems to work so well with people with PTSD and these types of things, you know, and part, I, I would maintain that part of why it works so well, it, because it, because it takes people into that precarious place, lovingly takes people into that precarious place and in that place holds them and repatterns them at the same time. But it doesn't do so by coddling. Psychedelics are not a coddling experience, right? We don't feel coddled in plant medicines. We feel torn open. And maybe that is what we need, yeah, ultimately. You know, your your, your podcast seems to be quite popular. And, and, and I think in general... Like there, there does seem to be a real resurgence of, I mean, interest in plant medicine. I mean, you, you see it everywhere. When I, when I started doing this work probably 15 years ago, I mean, no one had ever heard of ayahuasca. I was living in New York, and that word just wasn't in the, the vernacular. Now, you know, there's there's ceremonies <laughs> <And> now. <laughs> um, your your guest from from that second episode, uh, Boyo, he, he he mentioned something very interesting. He he said this this I think it was him. It could have been you, but he said it was this. You know, in, in the modern time we're living in, we're we're living in this religion of the suburbs. Um, and he mentioned this idea mm -hmm. of like that. You know, there's also this puritanism that's still very prevalent. I mean, even we were talking about that idea of trauma. It's like we have to rid ourselves of trauma. Trauma is seen as evil. It's the devil. And, and it's this yeah. idea of moving towards this state of purity. Um, and, you know, the, he also mentioned, I think, this idea of like the, the discourse of the city, the, the walls, the comfort, you know, fear of being outside, trying to control things. 
this idea that we long for permanence, like we're very afraid of death. It's kind of the whole Instagram culture and, um, and even this idea we touched on, which was like, uh, you know, the, 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 the freedom from pleasure, it's almost like it's a promise of, of, of freedom from pain. You know, if we can just, if we can just get rid of the pain, that's then, then, then we'll we'll be in a state of rapture and you know th there are kind of like all of these religious doctrines that come along with that 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 even as we're moving away from religion we become a very religious society in, in our politics and the way we live our lives you know there, there's gospel and doctrines and good and evil and apocalypse and we have new high priests um so you know i think it's fascinating because it seems like there's a there's a deep hole in humans that's longing for that religion or longing for that myth and and that maybe in a way if we lose that if we lose those traditions we fill it with something but we fill it in a way that you were speaking of that isn't necessarily coming from this this song of nature these these truths that are permeating and and yet it's coming more from the human mind from from something that's that's removed from that so maybe another big question but but do you think do you think there, there there's kind of a longing that the people are experiencing that that's making them redrawn to these stories to these traditions to these practices because it's actually a fundamental part of what it means to be a human that that if we don't have those we actually suffer in a way yeah um let me start with the first part of what you were saying about puritanism and um, you know, when I observe culture over time, I see that culture tends to re-express along certain lines over and over again, even when it thinks it's not doing that. So you can look, for example, in how you can very easily look at modern spirituality within capitalism and see how it recapitulates some of the problems with, you know, late stage capitalism, like over and over and over again, right? You can see that very clearly, the consumeristic aspect of it, the disposability aspect of it, all this kind of thing. Um, you know, Puritanism formed a very big part of the foundation of the growth of the United States, for example, and, you know, I think is, is present in, in other Western nations as well. And, you know, when I look at internet discourse today, for example, I see, I see a whole lot of like, you know, all, all opinions that differ from mine shall be burnt to the ground, right? Anything that is uncomfortable or that scares me or that challenges me shall be burnt, right? To me, this comes very, this is a direct lineage of puritanical models, right? And whether the person who's saying that is coming from the right, what's called the right, or what's called the left, I don't use these terms as much anymore. Um, but whether they're coming from, you know, the right or the left doesn't matter so much. If the fundamental way of talking about something is, that I only have space um, in my space of, you know, in my comfort zone. I only have space for people who see the world exactly the way I do. That to me is, is very puritanical, particularly in the type of tone that it takes, because 
then it becomes like the reason that you see things the way you do is because of some deep moral failing in you, right? And this is Puritanism meets modern pop psychology discourse <laughs> in a nutshell, right? If I look at you and I don't agree with something that you say, and then I say that, you know, the reason that you don't agree with me is because you're a narcissist and clearly, you know, have some type of deep moral failing. That's a fundamentally that that is discourse that comes sprouts right from the roots of Puritanism, right? American Puritanism, you know, again, that, that is like a, that is a witch, a witch burning style of communicating and, um, you know, religious conservatives, uh, do plenty of witch burning. And at the same time, I think sometimes the progressive left in our country is a little blind to the amount of witch burning that, that, uh, it does as well. Right. So I think that, you know, there is so much talk about having a new type of communication paradigm, you know, I mean, now we're in this place where it's like people say that they want, like, say, you know, consensus structures and anarchistic structures and this kind of thing. And yet they're still coming from this, like, if you say something that's different from the way I say, so, see something, uh, then I'm going to burn you to the ground. Those two things don't work together at all. Right. I mean, it makes, it makes certain things, certain types of organizing and communicating kind of impossible. So, you know, when we say that we want different communication models and we pay kind of lip service to um, indigenous communication models and this thing, this type of thing, we have to be really willing to look at our own deeply embedded Puritanism. We have to be really willing to look at where we say, like, where we're not in favor of letting the voices speak and letting those voices swirl around together and not immediately trying to take the conversation to a place of right or wrong not immediately trying to take the conversation to a place of you're wrong and I'm right, you know? And what's interesting to me, you know, people who've listened to the podcast probably noticed that I, I throw some jabs at, at the progressive left these days. And I throw jabs at the progressive left because, you know, that's where my heart is and that's where a big part of the audience is. And, uh, you know, if I got the sense that there are a lot of like real fundamentalist right-wingers listening to the podcast, I would be throwing jabs at them as well too, right? And those jabs are provocations. They're provocations, right? To look at um, our blind spots and to look at ways in which we become the thing that we're supposedly working against. And this is at play, you know, in the modern activist world, it's at play in the discourse around saving the planet. It's at play in a lot of different places where we're adopting um, a frantic, anxious, puritanical, capitalistic, you could say, way of approaching situations because we feel a franticness around getting things done. We feel a franticness around transforming the world. We feel, you know, the weight of the problems on our shoulders. And the natural way that we know how to deal with that in the modern West is through the ways that we've been culturally taught to do. But, you know, um, there is a beautiful piece from a woman who I believe is named Miriam Rose Unger, who's a Australian Aboriginal elder, and she's facing 
you know, the exact same problems that we're facing and she's facing more problems that we're not even facing in the modern West, you know, and she's talking about the need to slow down and listen and the need to let things take the time that they take and the need to carefully consider and to hone our ability to, to listen in, to hone our ability to not always feel that we have to like, you know, put an agenda on conversations or put an agenda on things. And like this to me is necessary work. It's necessary work to be able to hold possibility. It's necessary work to be able to sit with paradox. You know, I've traveled a lot and I've met a lot of people from a lot of different worldviews. And, you know, I've met people from very traditional religious backgrounds who are some of the most kind and loving people that I've ever met. You know, I've met activists who are kind and loving people too. I've met, and then I've met people in both of those communities that <laughs> are, you know, um, a little more challenging, right? Like, you know, the, the fact that somebody sees the world exactly like us doesn't mean much, right? It doesn't mean that they're right because guess what? I'm not right and you're not right, right? All we can seek to do is align ourselves to that which, you know, plays out in the larger natural world in a way that um, helps bring harmony among community. So, you know, I do firmly believe that there is such a thing as harmony and such a thing as discord. I believe that there is what you could call like alchemical dross, like in myself, like things that I need to burn off and things that I need to work on. I have come out of sweat lodge ceremonies and felt like a certain kind of purity, right? Right. But this is different than purity, like puritanical discourse as it's become. This is different than saying, if you don't see the world the way I see it, you're wrong. You are eternally condemned to being wrong. Right. This is a very, very different thing. So I think that we need to have a space to hold multiplicity and to, you know, I really like my life wouldn't be what it is if I haven't, if I hadn't traveled and met people who see the world vastly differently than I do. And that's an experience I think is important. I think the internet is so interesting in this regard because it's connected us, but at the same time, it's allowed us to live in echo chambers where we only hear what we want to hear. I mean, it's interesting. You hear some of the things that come out of kind of communal subgroups these days and the assumptions that like everyone talks this way or everyone sees the world this way or everyone, you know, and uh, sometimes I think there's just an incredible short sightedness in terms of like, that's just a tiny bubble that sees things this way. And that's just a tiny bubble that sees things that way. And eventually, you know, these bubbles are going to meet and intersect and um, we have to work together to find that common ground. And if we're not even willing to engage in that discussion of finding common ground, then um, there's not much transformation that can happen. Yeah. So those are a few thoughts on, on that topic. I know there's a lot more. But, yeah, yeah, I was reminded by a, a quote I read the other day. It was quite beautiful. I hadn't heard of the guy. His name is Hus Mirlu, and he, he wrote this in 1960, and he said that uh, – our human strength lies in our diversity and in independence of thought, in our acceptance of nonconformity, in willingness, in our willingness mm -hmm. to discuss and to evaluate various conflicting points of view, 
in denying the diversities of life and the complexity and individuality of the human mind, in preaching rigid dogmas and self-righteousness, we begin gradually to adopt the totalitarian attitude we deplore. And yeah, you know, it seemed mm -hmm. like that was a lot of what you were pointing to. Um, I, I know you need to get going. Um, so maybe to kind of wrap things up, um, um, you know, it, it's interesting because in, in, in one of the traditions I've, I've, you know, just touched on a little bit, but it, it comes from the Apoporos river of the Colombian Amazon. It's these group of people called the Tubu people. And they say that we're living mm -hmm. in the time of the Dirdo Amazon, which they kind of translate to the, the children of the new dawn. And it's these people who can take the medicine of the four directions and bridge them to create a new Maloka. And the Maloka is their, their ceremonial space. It's their, it's their home, but it, it also represents the world, the universe, this, this eternal time and space. And so there's, there's this idea mm -hmm. of we're living in this time of, of creating something new, of bridging these medicines of the four directions. And uh, yeah, just really commending you on that because it seems like that's that's kind of a role that you're serving. Um, where where do you think we'll, we'll we'll leave you with one one final big question? Um, where do you think this this power of myth and these stories are are heading in the direction? Do you do do you sense something like that kind of prophecy of of these myths? We are beginning to bridge them to find the commonalities to to kind of create something new. That there is this time, you know, because we are living in a time of of a lot of division, a lot of change, and and it's interesting this idea of this prophecy of, of being able to bridge these medicines of the the four directions to create something new. Um, and it seems to me that's that's one of the powers of, of myth and legends is it actually really helps us to remember in a sense who we are where we come from mm -hmm. what is important what does it mean to be a human what does it mean to be interconnected with with the web of life mm. um i think we're living in a time when all of these things are front and center and i think within that spirit of holding paradox and holding intricacy, I think that there will be many reactions to that. And I think that there will be those who run for cover. And I think that there will be those who try to convince themselves that there's nothing wrong here at all. <laughs> and I think that there will be those who um, try to take what they can until the Larry, until their very last breath. And I think that there are an increasing number of those who feel that in these times, in this time in which many of the, you know, major narratives around what it means to be human have kind of crumbled before our eyes, right? The modern narratives of what we're here for. I think you will have a whole lot of people who are seeking and longing uh, to remember, to remember a deeper way, a better way. And, you know, my hope is simply that people encounter ways to find depth around these inquiries, right? To find depth, to find teachers and traditions and spaces and communities in which they feel that they can explore the depth of that longing and the depth of that want. So I feel you know, there was an Italian philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, who said that the primary opening of the human being to the world is not logical, but musical. And I feel like we live in a world of 
vast forces and that these forces have voice and that we're trying to navigate as best we can, each of us, um, what has become kind of a great cacophony around us. And within that, each of us has the potential and the opportunity to hone and fine tune the instrument of the body, each individual body, to be able to receive the song that emits from nature all around us and to be able to learn a little bit about what it means to sing back, to sing back to the world. And so in these times, I think we're called to develop a deeper relationship with resonance, a deeper relationship with what it means to be an instrument in our communities, in our ritual lives, in our partnerships, all of it. So my hope is that we can learn what it means to sing back, each one of us. Beautiful, Josh. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, for sharing and for taking the time. If if people are interested in in learning more about you or, or the podcast or, or reaching out to you, anything like that, what's uh, what's the best way they can do that? So the the podcast, the Emerald Podcast, is available on anywhere you find podcasts, basically. And then I have a Patreon community and. It's um, patreon.com slash the Emerald podcast. And it's a really simple way to get more deeply involved. We have a study group that meets twice per month. We talk about the issues that are spoken about on the podcast. It's um, really become a vibrant community. And to support through Patreon starts at like $6 a month. So it's I want to keep it very accessible and very available for people who want to have come want to come have conversations. And then I also offer some courses on mythology and somatics, and I'll be announcing more about an upcoming course fairly soon. So the first gateway would be like through the Patreon community, and then there's uh, deeper study options available too. Great. And thanks for having me on. It's been a great conversation and a joy to talk. Yeah. Cheers, Josh. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Josh. It was a pleasure for me to have him on, to connect a bit with him, to learn more uh, about him and from him. Um, I, I trust you enjoyed that episode. And uh, also check out his podcast. He, he does an amazing job. It's called The Emerald, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a, a really beautiful way. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, that's a really big help to me. It's really what allows me to continue doing this podcast, bringing on these guests. Um, to all of the people who have supported that way, to all of the patrons, as always, I, I thank you very much for all of your support. And if you are able to do that, thank you very much in advance. Um, if that's something you're not able to do, as always, helping with the algorithms is a really big help. Uh, so if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help. Um, and then with the audio version, the podcast version, also subscribing or following to the show on Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating or a short review. And uh, on Spotify now, you can also leave a, a starred rating. 
So I think that's it. Um, I'm actually coming to you from Ireland right now. We're um, getting close to finishing up our dieta here. Um, also, if you're interested in, in working with myself and my colleague Marav, I believe we still have a couple spots left for our upcoming retreat in Boulder, Colorado, as well as in upstate New York. So if you'd like more information on that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org. Uh, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Um, my upcoming guests after this, I'm not uh, 100% sure because I'm shooting a number of these in advance. Um, <clears throat> but I was in uh, Portugal before this, also running Dieta, and there was a woman who I was in contact with a while back, and so uh, hopefully I'll get her on. She sounds like a really fascinating woman. Her name is Satya. And uh, after that, we'll have to see. Once I get back to Peru, I'll sit down and uh, and think about some future guests. So thank you all for the support. I hope this finds you all well. I wish you all the best, and I will see you all on the next episode. <laughs>